This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Promises. And the author is Susan A. Perkins, and Susan joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Susan. Hello. Fascinating way to get to know Jesus better through the eyes and the feelings of uh, the characters of this book called Promises. Uh, You say two women promise that no matter where life leads, they will always be friends, but fate has them marrying mortal enemies. Well, that yeah. certainly, uh, you know, is uh, quite a conflict right there. And then, of course, uh, their lives take very different paths, and their husband's hate keeps them apart. And then a prophet arises in Israel. And one of the characters brings Jesus home for dinner. Wow, that would be something. That would really be something. <laughs> I'm not sure how many women would want their husbands to do that to them. No, you know, I guess if they didn't realize who he was, it wouldn't matter. But, uh, well, Susan, you have an interesting background. And before we get into why you wrote the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, I have, I'm an ordained United Methodist minister. I have been with the church since. Um, 1975, I believe, um, and during part of that, I also had a 13-year career as um, chaplain in the United States Air Force, which was a very interesting part of my life, I think. Um, I was a reservist through that uh, time and served at many different air bases, both here in the United States and um, at one point in um, Ramstein, Germany. So what was the motivation to write this book? And what, and of course, uh, a series of books. This is, uh, <clears throat> would this be book one? Yes, Promises is book one. Um, what happened originally was that during different parts of my time in the ministry, um, part of what I did as far as ministry was to um, perform monologues that I wrote about women in the Bible. There's lots of wonderful women in the Bible. Unfortunately, most of us never get to meet them on a personal level. And so I wrote different monologues um, and performed them in different churches and programs. And sometimes they would be an introduction to a preaching service. And my husband, Robert, loved the monologue on Anula. And he would often say, I need to know more of her story. Why don't you tell me more of her story? Well, one year for his birthday, um, because I couldn't afford what he really wanted, which was a Mustang, and I don't mean the car or the horse, <laughs> I mean the thing that flies. <laughs> he wanted a Mustang. No, no, that's not going to happen. But I thought, well, I, I could sit down and tell him the rest of the story of um, Anula. And so I explained how he, she and Zacchaeus meet, why there was a promise between her and her best friend that... Um, was hard to keep because um, the best friend's husband was adamant that she not, that 
his, his wife, Eunice, not spend any time with the tax collector's wife. If you're a Pharisee, a tax collector for Rome would be somebody you would not want near your family, for obvious reasons. <laughs> I think we still feel that way about tax collectors today, yes, but back then yes. it was a really big deal. And even though they try to be friends, they really can't. And um, Anuus is with Eunice for the birth of her first two children, but then when she has the opportunity to marry finally, and the only opportunity that's presented to her is the um, to be married to a tax collector, because she has no dowry, she has no family background, but he wants a wife, and he's willing to to do that without the dowry and all of the other things. And so she makes the choice then to at least have a family. And she knows that this will make it hard to be friends with her lifelong friend. But she makes that choice anyway. And so it was, you know, through the monologue and, and through this um, trying to decide how to to put the story together that we took the information from the monologue and expanded it into the first book. Well, obviously, as we already mentioned in, in the introduction, uh, Zacchaeus brings Jesus home for dinner. Yes. <laughs> so is there is there some understanding? Is his fame enough that... Uh, that Zacchaeus or Anua understand who he claims to be? I think uh, at that point in time, historically, most of the area, you know, because people talk to each other, most of the area knew that he was somebody special. Many of the people believed he may be the promised Messiah. Most people realized that there was something special going on because he was healing people and feeding people and touching people's hearts. So he was different from a lot of the other people or other street corner preachers, so to speak, that had arisen in Israel. And uh, so by the time that Zacchaeus meets him, he sees him coming into town, but because Zacchaeus, and this is part of the main part of the story, is that he's a very short man. He's not going to be able to see over the crowds, so he climbs up into the sycamore tree. And Jesus stops under the sycamore tree, and he looks up into it, and he says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. So he invites him home. Actually, he invites himself to the right. Um In the book, um, Anya sees this happen, because she's out doing her little... Um, picking up of vegetables and, uh, you know, the basic, I mean, basically they had to go out and buy fresh things every day. So she's out doing that and she sees what happens and she's like, oh my, he's bringing him home for lunch. <laughs> so she runs home and she puts together a lunch for the disciples and Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus, a couple of his friends. And they're in the garden. Now, as it turns out, because they live in a very nice home, they live in the home next to the Pharisee. So these, these two women who care for each other so deeply have lived next door to each other all their lives, and yet they are not allowed to speak their Amos for visit. And so at, at one point, in the uh, both in the story biblically and in the story in the book, the Pharisee is standing at the garden gate saying, look, he's gone to eat with a sinner. And that's when Zacchaeus promises the Lord he will give to the poor half of what he owes, owns. And then he will return 
four times as much to anybody that he has stolen anything from in being a tax collector. Well, obviously, the, uh, the disciples are pretty impressed with this. And later in the book, Eunice tells her husband, if Jesus can eat with them, I can visit my friend. And she goes back to the home of her friend, and they become friends again. And I think I'm giving away part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's tremendous conflict, obviously, uh, at all different levels here. And so oh, yes. that's what the, makes the, the, the story. The has no use at all for right. Zacchaeus. <laughs> makes the story so interesting because there is so much conflict. And, and Jesus uh, admitted that he would bring conflict. Oh, yes, we knew that. Mm-hmm. And, but he also brings peace. Right. Well, to those who accept it, right? Accept him, he exactly. brings peace. Exactly. It's something you have to do yourself. Right. Yeah, you have to make that leap of faith. And obviously mm-hmm. your character, some of them make the leap and others don't. I think that's, you know, when my husband first read the book, which was just, it wasn't published. I just printed it off the computer and had a little plastic binder put on it. And I gave it to him for his birthday. And he's like, you wrote this book? You wrote this whole thing, and I'm like, yeah, I jumped out of the computer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> he read the whole thing, and he says, I have goosebumps. What happens next? Mm. Well, I hadn't even thought about it being a next. <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> well, we'll write the story he wanted to know. The rest of the story of uh, Anya and, and Eunice. And um, so I thought, well, okay, yeah, we could we could do another book here. And he said, well, I want to know what happens when Jesus goes up for Passover to Jerusalem, the Passover. And so I approached it as Passover Promises, which is the second book, and approached it from the point that now Zacchaeus and his family believe that this man truly is the Messiah that's coming, that was promised that he would come at Passover. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Amos and his family are going up to Jerusalem to spend the holiday with um, his family, but they don't believe, although the young people in his family are beginning to search. They're asking questions. They want to know what's going on. And so within the household of Amos, you have this conflict of the young people searching for the Messiah, thinking maybe this man is him. And the older people saying, no, no, he's not, and we need to put a stop to this. Right. Which, of course, there are those then who do, during the Passover, try to put a stop to what Jesus is doing, not realizing that they're fulfilling the scriptures even as they do this. Mm -hmm. Well, it really causes us to think about how would we react? You know, you've set this up so beautifully, and so pointedly and so realistically, how would we react if we were one of these characters or, you know, friends or family or, you know, there to witness this? Exactly. I think that's the whole point of really any Christian literature like that is to not only tell a story that's that's good to read, but for us to see ourselves in the characters and say, where am I in this choice? And I made the right choice. Am I following him the way I should? Um, And persecution became a part of the whole storylines then later within that century when Rome was finding 
that this was just becoming a, not just a problem, it was becoming a real issue. That Rome starts to take an interest in what's going on with these people as well and starts making some judgment calls about what are we going to do with this problem. And so persecution becomes an issue. And so part of it is asking the question of ourselves, who is this man Jesus? What does he mean to us? What should we do about that once we figure it out? And am I strong enough that if the tides change in, at some point in time here in America or anywhere else in this world, will I be willing to stand and say, yes, I belong to him? Yes. Well, how does this book, how does this book relate to your Christian ministry? Well, I think many of the, the things that go on in it are part of the things that I have always preached, only just expanding it into a story situation. And um, I think the, the growing up years of my life, um, I spent in a Lutheran church, and um, I don't know if it was every Lutheran church or this particular Lutheran church, but they spent a great deal of time in the Sunday school lessons telling us the stories of Jesus. And I was always fascinated, not just so much about the theology of Jesus, but the stories of Jesus. And the stories of the Bible, per se, even the Old Testament. And I think that my growing up years gave me the stories, and they were so fascinating to me that it wasn't much of a leap for me to start writing the stories and making the people very, very real. Well, you know, the, if you read the Bible, the stories are there, and they're really good stories. I always want to know what else is going on. Was there a mom? Was there a brother or sister? Did they have a dog? <laughs> right. I, I wanted to know what the whole family dynamic was around that story. And then when I began writing, that's what happened, is I began to add the family dynamic of the stories. We have a couple minutes left to talk about your book, Promises. You say too much Christian fiction is sentimental romance, and of course your book is much different. Mm-hmm. Did you purposely stay away from that kind of theme? Um, I, I must confess that um, book four is love promises, and it is more of a romance. But I did, yes, purposely stay away from just the sentimental romance stories because I really wanted to tell a little bit of the hard story as well. The hard choices that the we must make. The hard choices. The, um, mm -hmm. We're not always getting what we want. Right. Maybe we get what we need. Um, hmm. yes. I, I, <laughs> my sister, who loves to read romances, when she read the first book, she said, well, I knew that they were going to get married. What was the big deal? And I said, that wasn't the story. <laughs> <laughs> the story was that he brought Jesus home, and what do they do with him now? Yeah. How does he change their lives? There's <laughs> nothing to do with the romance. Right, right. It's hard choices. It took her a minute to get that. Hard, cho hard choices have to be made when this kind of situation arises. And, of course, throughout the world, there are some very persecuted Christians. We don't have that as right now anyway, but... Who knows what the future may bring. And there are some places in the world where it hasn't been so long ago that persecution was still a part of it. I mean, just, I mean, Russia, if you look at Russia for the longest time, they really, 
they didn't forbid the Bible, they just encouraged against it. And of course, in the Middle East right now, um, being a Christian, you have to hide. Right. Because if you're not in Israel, then they don't want any part of that. So it is still part of our world a little bit, but it, it's America has never had much of an issue about it one way or the other. This is going to be a seven-book series, it Promises? It looks like it's becoming seven books, yes. Seven books. Well, Susan, Susan A. Perkins, tell us how mm-hmm. to get your book. Um, Author House has them available, so you could go to the Author House website, which would be authorhouse.com, and put in Susan A. Perkins and Promises, or the second one, which is um, Passover Promises, and you can buy them from the website, or from the the Author House website. You can also get them on Amazon, the Amazon.com website. Thank you for being with us on Author Talk, Susan. Thank you very much for calling. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Tumult and Dr. Francis Lowe, Life of Rebecca Lee. And the author is Eula Youngblood. And Eula joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Eula. Good morning, sir. How are you today? This is a fascinating story. It's uh, almost... It's like impossible, but it's based on a true story of 
of Rebecca Lee. Uh, we'll get into the details and why you fictionalized it, but let me just read a couple of things you've written so everyone understands the uh, theme of the book. This book shows the tumultuous situations a female Negro doctor faces while pioneering in the Wild West in the mid-1800s. It is the uniqueness of a female Negro doctor trying to practice medicine when whites thought it was despicable and her own race thought it was sacrilege. So a lot of conflict, a lot of conflict in this story. Of what was the fascination that created all this, Eula? How did you get uh, so passionate about helping tell the story of Dr. Rebecca Lee? When I went to do some research in the public library, I found one paragraph in two different books about her, mentioning her name. No more history than that, and I tried to present her to several television uh, studios as a TV series and was turned down. They said it was not time. And I thought, there's something fascinating about this woman because everybody wants to shove her back in the closet, and I wanted to pull her out. So that was my passion, to get this woman known. And several stations, I don't want to name their, their you know, ethnicity, but they uh, told me that I was a novice and I wouldn't do a good job on it. And yet they did some stories about female doctor pioneering in the Ozarks, and right behind that came Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, and I felt that this woman has to be known for her own accomplishments and not through somebody else. So that was why I fought so hard to get her known. And finally I decided, stop writing screenplays and teleplays and do a novel. And now she's coming to the forefront. And why did you choose to change her name to Frances Lowe? This is the 18th century in the middle of it. And I could not send her into dangerous situation as Rebecca Lee because everybody would instantly know it was a woman. So I wanted to surprise the person who would advertise it for medical help by changing her name to Frances, which could be a male or female. C-E-S is female, and C-I-S is male. And that way nobody would know who she was until she arrived. And the time period, uh, you said mid-1800s, is it uh, pre- or post-Civil War? It's both just at the end of the Civil War and after. She practiced actually after the Civil War. But her medical experience was learned and earned. Actually, she graduated from the what is it, Boston Female Medical College, mm-hmm. in 1864, which was just at the end of the Civil War, close to it. Now, again, back to the, uh, Dr. Rebecca Lee, who the character is based on, Frances Loa. How did she get into medicine? She was introduced into medicine by a woman called Harriet Hunt and Marie Sakrazuska. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Uh, They were fighting for Negro civil rights, and they had a tumultuous situation with Harvard trying to get women and minorities into medical schools. And so they had a medical school in Boston, and they invited her to come in to study. Because she was already working as a uh, 
trained midwife type person, you know, nurse sort of. And so they saw potential with her, and they brought her into medical school there. So she was had a great intellect. Absolutely. Yes, she was already, you know, interested in this kind of thing. And, and actually, she didn't think she would make it as a doctor, but because she was so astute, those doctors, those two lady doctors, saw a potential in her and, and decided to do something with it. Well, you put her in some really tough situations. Are these mostly fictitious situations, or are there any based on fact here? They're not based on fact. I'm not even certain there was a, a military facility for a hospital in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, but because I wanted to send her all through all parts of the Midwest and the, and the South and the West, I, I chose St. Louis as the first step toward her first position, and it was a despicable situation, however, because nobody wanted that facility. It was for all black soldiers and low, educated white soldiers who were injured, and it was filthy and despicable and nobody wanted it. So when she arrived and they found out who she was, they decided to give her that facility. And then over to uh, Richmond, Virginia, I moved her over there because she was in trouble in, in St. Louis and had to run. And there, um, I thought, as I read about the history of, of uh Virginia, I thought this is a good place to begin the acknowledgement of her capabilities, and I put her there, but again, she had to run, you know, so it was just a trail of escapism, but I'm very grateful to say that something that my father taught me when I was leaving home, that those people who are afraid of you or jealous of you, of what's something you have, and I noticed that and he said that you have to remember that all white people are not bad and all black people are not good. And this, this I wanted to bring that point out, too, because of current discrimination in our world today that I've heard my own people say that they couldn't get ahead because some white person kept them down or vice versa. And I wanted to show that's not true. The real people who are not prejudiced, are out there to help anyone who's willing to work for what they deserve, you know. So that was my point in showing that these people helped her uh, escape and helped her get ahead. And there were a lot of messages within the story that I wanted to bring out that you see every day in the political arena and the working stories and everything else that people are just mean and spiteful in some areas, you know, and it's, it needed to be told and it needed to be shown. One of those mean characters, uh, even a sex offender, Sergeant Robert Cox. There you go. Tell us about him. Sergeant Robert Cox, I wanted to show that he had some kind of emotional or mental problem. He, he was excellent as an as a intern. He was a medical physician as well, but he was in a lower position. And, and he had a drive and a thirst for sexual behaviors, and he wanted all of those to be virgins. So he molested little girls, and he wanted to molest Dr. Lowe of Rebecca Lee when he found out that she had never had a date or never had a boyfriend. So his, his obsession was to, to molest her. 
And then, then when he couldn't have his way with her and she burned him uh, with a kerosene lamp and he actually pelted his hide with the buckshot, he decided that she needed to be dead. And the doctor who helped her, Dr. Broxton, his family needed to be punished as well. So he had an obsession to get rid of her and Dr. Broxton's family. And, and so he followed her to, Saint, to uh, Virginia. And there he met his end with Dr. Lowe. But you have to understand that there is a, a law in the South that's called the Jim Crow Law. Have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. And no black person is allowed to kill or injure a white person. Right. And since she had killed this white man, they had to sneak her out of town again. Yeah, that's when she ends up in rural Nevada, the Wild West. Yes, wild west out there, yes. And what a shock, right, when she arrives. When she arrived, I mean, they were awfully shocked. Because they had looked at the first part of the train, and as you know, probably, uh, black people could not take the train on the first coaches. They had to go in the last, last coach on the train in the back. And they were looking for the doctor to come out of the front coaches, and way in the back comes this black woman dragging her trunk. Yeah, and they were thought, and of course, you know, with the name Francis, they didn't they, expect a woman. They thought they did not expect it to be a woman. They didn't even ask to show you how, uh, how backwards they were. They didn't ask for good credentials. They just got excited because the doctor was coming. And, and she didn't tell him that, that she was female or black or anything. She just said that she was graduated from a medical school in Boston, and her name was Frances Lowe, and they, and, and they accepted her. And there she was, shocked. Well, and she uh, had some big challenges uh, there, obviously, and ends up uh, kind of, uh, I guess, running for her life. She, she was in turmoil there. She had to be jailed, and they were waiting for a circuit judge to come to try her so they could hang her. And one of the reasons they wanted to hang her again was, as a practicing doctor, several of her patients died, and they called it murder. And she also had shot a half-breed. He was half Indian and half white, and he, too, wanted to molest her, and so... She had the opportunity of, of shoot pelting him again with her sawed-off shotgun, as they call it, Little Billy One and her buddies. You know, I, I don't know much about those 12-gauge shotguns, but I understand <laughs> it. If you shot, cut them off, and see, she always wore this tied around a string under her apron, mm. you know, when she, when she went to work or when she was walking about. And she was able to save the doctors, Dr. Broxton's family, who moved to Virginia with her. She was able to save their lives as well. And then she was able to get rid of this fellow in Nevada who was a troublemaker. But it created a lot of problems for her. So that is uh, a very high-powered concealed weapon. (laughs) Yes, 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 it was a concealed (laughs) weapon. A little, little different have, than we think of today with a small uh, pistol or something concealed. Yeah, well, you know, when the, when she had to wear a costume, you know, they wear the dress, then they wear the white apron over right. the front, tied yeah. to the back, you know, to look sort of like a medical personnel. And, and this is how she was able to tie it around her waist and conceal it. And I, I 
talk to my my uh, family and my husband and everyone else, and they were telling me because I grew up in the country and I remember shotgun being very heavy, mm-hmm. and and I didn't know how she was able to to uh, manage work. But she in all situations she didn't wear the gun. It was all when she was suspicious of some dangerous situations that she did wear it, and fortunately it came in handy in my story. Now, one of your themes, uh, you state it this way, it is hard to believe how mature men stoop to verbal abuse in their quest for financial or social gain, mainly political gain. Uh, well, today I think we understand that, what's going on in the world, but you, you put that in for a very uh, specific reason? I did. I did. This, this political uh, campaign it's the most disgraceful campaign I have ever experienced. I follow them because I, I'm looking for stories all the time. Right. And I follow it so much, and I have never been so embarrassed in my own country with this last political uh, campaign. And they're all of the same political party, and they fought like mm-hmm. children. And right. I thought, I can't believe this is happening in the United States. And that, that disgusts me terribly. You also talk about how our military protectors can come home injured and are forgotten. Now, that's uh, part of your book as well. Yes. Um, I understand from a basketball player, Kobe Bryant, have you heard of him? Right. Oh, yes. I heard that we have 40,000 military personnel in the Los Angeles County who are homeless. Wow. And it almost made me cry. And I have one objection. If I can wish myself to become wealthy, we have a lot of brand new homes here in, in the Antelope Valley where I live. I would buy a bunch of those homes and put those vets in them. <laughs> and the default, right. the worn out, um, what do you call it, hotels or motels, right. that too, I would remodel the plumbing and the electricity and put those veterans in those, too, because my heart goes out. I have five brothers. Three of them served in the military. And I just, I just, my heart goes out to them, you know, well, and I would sure. love to be able to do something, right. but I don't know what. Well, you're working on two more novels? Yes, I have just finished one, and it's now at the publisher. It should be uh, on the bookstores or in the bookstores at the end of July, the 1st of August. And we need to tell everyone, uh, you're not being uh, hampered at all about your passion for writing, even though you're now legally blind. I'm not. My son set me up with the Dragon Naturally Speaking. You heard of that? Sure, definitely. It's a voice-activated program. Mm -hmm. But now, because I grew up in Georgia, had speech therapy in Pennsylvania, and then moved to California, I have a speech problem. You know, because I cannot pronounce C-A-R, P-A-R-K, and those kind of things. Hmm. And and the um, I think that was my Boston and speech therapist. He <laughs> did that to me. But anyhow, um, the, the voice-activated program doesn't understand that. And so it will write what he thinks. For example, if I say, <laughs> I read a book, he would write R-E-D, possibly. <laughs> And so I have problems, so I have to get a proofreader to go over right. what I've done. 
and see whether the dragon is wrong or I'm wrong. So that's <laughs> that's how I do it. But it doesn't it doesn't uh, discourage me. I just keep writing. We've been listening to Eula Youngblood. She is the author of her book, Tumult and Dr. Francis Lowe, Life of Rebecca Lee. Eula, tell us how to get your book. You can actually write to Father uh, House and give them the, the uh, number of the book, or you can go onto my website, and that will be published publicly on Google or one of the other uh research programs. The the uh, ID number is I-E-Y E is in ever Y is in your 45985 Google will carry it. Um, Barnes and Noble will possibly have it You can, or they will order it for you. Eula, we really appreciate you being with us on Author Talk. Very interesting. Thank you so much for inviting me in. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899. 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Horse Sense Nutrition. Fat Loss for Humans, and the author is Carl Blake, and Carl joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Carl. Hello, Steve. Delighted to be here. Well, this is a very effective way to lose fat, and we're going to emphasize this isn't just about weight loss, it's about fat loss, and there is a difference, and, and it's liberation from the tyranny of fat. I think we all, you know, get fed up with 
sometimes our fat. <laughs> we can't get rid of it, it seems. But let me uh, introduce your book this way. Uh, you've written this. Everyday Nutrition is a fun topic. Horse Sense Nutrition, Fat Loss for Humans is an eater's digest that counsels you how to liberate yourself from fat in enjoyable and imaginative ways. You'll reinforce what you're doing right and learn what you can improve upon. Small efforts of eating right, exercising with might, sleeping tight, and easing fright will accelerate your fat loss efforts and elevate you to a higher health potential. Well, very well said. That just kind of sums up everything. And it's, uh, like you say, it's horse sense nutrition, common sense. Uh, how did you get into this, Carl? What was the motivation? Tell us about yourself. Well, first of all, um, uh, Steve, I heard in one of your um, previous talk shows that there are approximately 52 million people in the country without medical insurance. And uh, through job loss about this time last year, I became another member of that group of uninsured people. Uh, and of course, you know, with job loss, you know, one of the uh, most uh, important questions that you're going to ask yourself is, um, well, what am I going to do? And I asked myself that question, eventually transformed that question in what do I want to do? And I decided that, well, uh, being that I didn't have medical insurance, one of the most important things I could do was to become more serious about my health and um, realizing that most of my health markers are pretty good. The only one being a little bit unsatisfactory is um, some, some weight gain from recent years. And so I decided to combine uh, my need to, to do something creative, you know, out of the ashes of personal adversity, opportunity arises very often, to take uh, that, that need and uh, combine it with an interest uh, in eating and in researching nutritional uh, topics and also getting myself to a higher potential of health. So all of those things kind of uh, combine to get me interested in writing this book about nutrition and fat loss. And you've had some uh, really good success. Oh, yes, I have. Um, uh, you know, we, I, I make a very important point in the book, distinction between weight loss and fat loss. Um, uh, with both of them, fat loss and weight loss, we... Um, are not losing only fat, but we're losing some protein and we're losing water. In fact, when people experience rapid weight loss uh, at the very beginning of their uh, trial, it's usually water, and that's why it's so quick for the weight to return. So in my case, I've not lost very much uh, weight, maybe just a few pounds, but I have lost a lot of fat. So my body fat composition has gone from 36% body fat to 23% body fat in less than eight months. And that's a pretty tremendous uh, record to boast about. I still have a few uh, more percentage points to go because for males, generally we want to strive for 13 to 17% body fat. Um, and so I have about 6% to go, which means I have a few more months to keep working. 
but I'm very pleased with my uh, progress, and I'm I'm pleased that uh, I followed my own advice, and it has paid off. So I think it will help others as well. One of your initial chapters is titled Preliminary Steps for Fat Loss. Uh, What are the preliminary steps? The preliminary steps, uh, we want to concentrate, first of all, on um, uh, the sort of uh, subtitle for that chapter is uh, planetary nutrients. And I made up that term because um, I had not heard um, any other term that could sort of capture the idea that before we get started with uh, the idea of eating or exercising or easing stress, that we have some planetary uh, forces that are assisting us all the time and we're not aware of them or we take them for granted, but um, the absence of them would certainly be disastrous for us. So the first thing is that we live on a sun planet. So it's the sun that uh, and the solar power that we get from it that really sort of enliven our entire existence. It's the basis of our health. So uh, the first step is, uh, I say, letting the sunshine in. So getting enough sun, which uh, helps us to make vitamin D, which uh, is now being discovered as one of the great um, uh, vitamins that is uh, much more important to us than we had thought. Then the second step would be, um, I say, air on the side of caution, which is oxygen. Oxygen is perhaps the second most vital nutrient for life on Earth, and so we need to make sure that we are breathing well and getting plenty of oxygen because it's also the basis of uh, our life. Uh, the third thing is um, water, hydration. I, I say hydration, liquefy or dry. So the body consists more of water than any other substance. So um, water is uh, a precious element for the planet, for sustaining life, and it's, and it's important for human life as well. And we consider water the elixir of life. And then um, we, I talk about um, some essential and accessory nutrients that the body needs. And um, then we get into the, what is known in nutrition terms as the macronutrients, the big nutrients such as protein, carbohydrates, and fats. So that sort of sort of takes you through the, the world of, of important nutrients for the body, and that is sun, uh, air, water, and the central nutrients, large ones and small ones. Now you have another chapter that focuses on carbs, uh, carb addictions and additions. Uh, that's a real problem for us today, isn't it? It really is. Um, You know, there are some uh, people who feel that um, carbohydrates are the least important um, macronutrients in our diet. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think they're all important. But what really is not important in our diet is getting the refined processed carbohydrates. So those are the ones that we tend to be addicted to. And those are the ones that we need to minimize or moderate in our diet. But the plant kingdom itself, those carbohydrates, I think should become the center of our nutrition because they carry all of those tiny um, um, nutrients and micronutrients, trace elements 
that actually um, keep our metabolism in tip-top order. And, of course, exercise. Uh, I don't think you're advocating and become an exercise fanatic, are you? No, I'm not. In fact, I think the less exercise, the better. But if you can make, if we can make our, there are two kinds of exercise uh, forms that I'm promoting. One is long, slow, durational exercise, for example, walking. If we choose it as one of our forms of exercise, it shouldn't be just a five or ten minute walk, although that can be uh, helpful, but we should make it longer um, to make it more effective. But the more intense forms of exercise, for example, strength training or jumping rope, um, and uh, the more intense forms of exercise should be shorter uh, durational. Um, and they both have their, their benefits. Uh, for example, um, the, uh, any form of exercise basically is, is helpful in creating more um, hormonal sensitivity in our bodies. Uh, but I think that uh, it, for me, because I'm a little bit, uh, well, I like exercise, but um, I'd like to get it over with as, as soon as possible. So I prefer the short, intense form of exercise. For me, it's more invigorating, and um, it, um, uh, uh, it doesn't tend to burn a lot of calories while you're doing it, but it burns more calories after, during your rest, relaxation, and recuperation periods than the slow durational exercise such as walking. But I do both, and I enjoy both. Why do you say hormones are the power brokers of fat loss? Well, I say that because um, they are really the, the messengers of the body that signal all of the, the organs and the muscles, they, they sort of deliver the messages to all of the, the body about what to do. So if we're going to affect um, fat loss, we have to start having more um, interactive and significant dialogue with our hormones because they really control um, all of the mechanisms for, for fat burning and fat storage. And we're talking about things like um, insulin and ghrelin, um, antiponectin, um, cortisol, a human growth hormone. There are many, many, many uh, hormones. Some of them have, um, you know, common names. Uh, and others are kind of scary and uh, kind of in cold. But uh, my book sort of uh, delineates all of those. But hormones are are really the power brokers of fat loss. I like the title of this chapter, Imaginative Meal Planning. That's probably one thing that most of us don't do. Use our imagination and also then plan your your meals. Exactly. You know, um, the, the, the variety that we can get in our meals is just so amazing that I'm surprised that we all just sort of content ourselves with just a very limited way of eating and a limited number of foods. Uh, the most important thing that I try to stress in this chapter on imaginative meal planning 
is that when we eat, we should eat for satiety, a sense of fullness or satisfaction. Uh, and there are many things that, that um, register in our gut and brain as satiety or satisfaction and fullness. Um, so it could be the, uh, the duration of the meal. Uh, if it's a long duration, then we feel more satisfied. Uh, if there uh, is great volume, uh, if there's calorie density, if there are a lot of different nutrients, if there's fiber, uh, if there's water, and um, if there's um, sufficient fat and carbohydrates. Um, so um, we can find in our snacks and our meals many ways of experiencing satiety, which I think really in the end is going to control our eating habits because most of us eat and after our eating we're still not satisfied, so we keep eating almost nonstop. Our problem is we eat too much, uh, too fast, and too often. And when we start experiencing satiety, then we um, are able to gain control over, over the quantity and the frequency and the quality of our eating. Now, there are some foods that, as you point out, have been vilified, such as eggs and butter and uh, pork lard, avocado, some starchy foods. Uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I think we've been somewhat um, misguided and misinformed by um, by diet uh, diet gurus, by the media, by the science and art of nutrition. And uh, what happens is that um, and, and, and a lot of bad research or poor research comes out, and it sort of takes on a life of its own, and we believe in it until, of course, Someone else comes along and, and corrects all of that. But eggs for the longest were vilified as, um, as foods that we should not eat because they contribute to um, cholesterol, high cholesterol and bad cholesterol and um, hardening of the arteries and that sort of thing. But we found out in the most recent research that it does dietary cholesterol does not contribute to those those problems, and that the egg um, it has uh, it's just replete with uh, great nutrition, and in terms of its protein, it's probably one of the best sources of protein that we can find. Uh, it has a very high biological value, the protein, which means how well the body can assimilate uh, the protein, and it's a very high score that the eggs have. So, uh, and also. Um, eggs are, have omega-3 fatty acids in them, as well as omega-6 fatty acids, and um, they are just um, great foods to eat. We've been listening to Carl Blake, author of his book, Horse Sense Nutrition, Fat Loss for Humans. Carl, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, you can get the book through the normal channels of um, uh, booksellers, uh, for example, Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble and Kindle. Also, the publisher of this book is Arthur House, and you can go on to their website, www.arthurhouse.com, and order it there. And you can even call me, and um, I can send you a copy as well. Um, 
I have a website that is going to be live in about five days. So until then, uh, you can just call me on my home phone, and I'll be happy to service you. And that number is area code 510-567-8877. That's 510-567-8877. I'll be happy to hear from you. Thank you, Carl, for being with us on Author Talk. It was my pleasure, Stephen. Thank you. 